0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to
1: Unemployed unemployed Workers workers Fight Back. back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show
2: between 5.30 and 6.30pm.
1: Here on 3CR Community Community Radio. Radio.
2: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions.
1: For the unemployed and underemployed.
2: Everyone everyone in in our our community community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday the 26th of March. What's happening Anne? Who have we got on?
1: So today we are showcasing a video, Kevin. And I'm really not sure how showcasing a video is going to work on radio, but I reckon we can give it a bell.
2: (laughs) Yeah, video on radio. Uh, Tell me more.
1: This video is a two-part animation which has been produced by some local talent here in Victoria. And the video is called Introduction to Modern Monetary Theory. So it's a video that will explain modern monetary theory for people who are new to modern monetary theory. And of course, MMT is the school of economic thought that you and I subscribe to, Kevin. Indeed. I will put a link to the, the two videos on YouTube. So, so, who's the creator? Who's the creator of this, um, this
2: marvellous video, Anne?
1: I do believe it is the amazing Misha Herman, who has gotten together with Emma Winton, who's done the artwork, and Kat Kuntari, who has done the voiceover. And we are lucky enough to have Misha with us today. So, Misha, welcome to the show. Thanks,
3: Anne. Thanks, Thanks, Kev. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, Misha, you pretty much burst onto the MMT scene (laughs) here in Australia with this amazing animation. Obviously, MMT has moved you to creativity.
3: (laughs) Very much so. Thank you for that very generous introduction. Um, I guess I'd probably first acknowledge all the... Other contributors to the video um, and the online resources and articles that I drew on, that includes an article um, by Dr. Stephen Hale, some of the writings of Warren Mosler, you know, Bill Mitchell had a lot of feedback and input into the video as well. And also just the way Patricia Pino and Christian Riley talk about MMT, you know, with some humor and And lightness um, has also made its way into the video. Um, And I'm really grateful for those people allowing me to paraphrase or or use directly some of their writings and speeches.
1: Oh, I I plagiarise all the time. I mean, paraphrase. (laughs) So Christian and uh, Patricia, you mentioned, they run the podcast called MMT Podcast, which is a really great listen. And then you're also mentioning some of the founders of this economic theory, Professor Bill Mitchell and Warren Mosler. Yeah. Tell us a bit about how you came to MMT and what inspired this video.
3: Uh, I sort of came to MMT mid last year.
1: So that was pretty much in the middle of the pandemic. So that was a sort of nationally anxious time. And of course, that's when people did start talking about all the money that the government was spending.
3: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of all this money that was being injected into the economy through the, you know, the temporary doubling of the job seeker rate, etc. Uh, and that was just so at odds with the end of 2019 when we had the federal government shouting from the rooftops that they're going to be back in the black. (laughs) They're forecast running a fiscal surplus. But as I said, even in the media then, there were rumblings of, oh, yeah, but the national debt, you know, this could be an issue, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, being self-employed sand engineer, I was on the receiving end of JobKeeper, which really certainly kept uh, my partner and I afloat as we're both essentially gig economy workers. Mm. That was really, you know, a lifeline, I guess, for for us and for a lot of people.
1: You're in an industry that was one of the hardest hit. As part of the pandemic,
3: yeah, and I'm in my mid 30s and most of my adult life has been fairly stable economically, there haven't been any major upsets as it were. Mm. so this was kind of my first experience of really huge you know economic upheaval
1: that's a pretty short uh, window there because you're six months in and you've suddenly produced this amazing video which helps people to learn about what modern monetary theory is. so tell us about that trajectory in that six-month window?
3: My interest was sparked when a friend said to me, it doesn't really seem that the government would ever, the federal government that is, it doesn't seem that they would ever be unable to pay back the um, national debt. Mm-hmm. That really sparked my interest in modern monetary theory because I think like a lot of people, I believe that our national debt was an issue that we all had to be worried about. Not that I was ever personally kind of concerned about it. I i didn't have an economics bone in my body for my whole life. But, you know, But I'm a sound engineer and musician and More or less, just ignore the economy, you know, Mm -hmm. to my shame, I guess, for my
2: whole life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I call myself economically illiterate for about the first five decades of my my short career here.
2: But can I say that that's by design? Mm. For the people who benefit most from the current way our economy runs, uh, they benefit from general ignorance and they prefer people to remain ignorant so that they can sit back and say hey hey just trust us with the economy we know what we're doing with the economy and you guys don't need to know about it it's way too complex trust the experts and leave it in our hands and that's that's been a strategy enjoyed by the conservatives for quite some time ignorance is bliss for them but it works in their favor
1: yeah yeah, it reminds me of how the high priest, how they did the mass in Latin. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so- <laughs> you just had to accept their word for it that they were in touch with God.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think a big part of the difficulty I certainly had with understanding economics was just the, the lingo and the economics jargon you come across. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of what I read and a lot of what I was listening to, I was stopping and then Googling terms like, you know, bond yield and yield curve and, exchange settlement accounts and all this stuff. It's like, what the hell did all this mean? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that's definitely like a barrier to understanding.
1: Well, I've heard uh, Bill Mitchell say it's like learning another language, and it is in a way. Mm. We could have been learning about this in high school, you know, building our knowledge. But, of course, as Kevin says, it doesn't suit the uh, vested interest for that to happen.
2: Yeah, One of the very important things that we're trying to do with this show is – distill it down into some basic concepts so that people can get their heads around it. Now of course Doing that via audio. <laughs> you're a sound guy, I'm a lighting guy, I'm very much into the visuals of stuff. And this is why I'm quite uh, quite excited about what you're doing, Misha, is that um, a picture is worth a thousand words.
1: I've often thought, Kevin, that the best way to torture an economist is to invite them onto a radio show because then they can't point to their graphs or their charts. <laughs> ah,
2: exactly. <laughs>
1: when you're talking about your learning curve, Misha, I've heard more than one person say that they need to hear it maybe two or three times before it really gels. Yeah, before it lands, yeah. So I don't think anyone should feel bad if, if they hear Kevin and I rambling on and we just sound like we're rambling.
2: <laughs> we do repeat ourselves a lot, uh, and and that's not by mistake. We, we have to remind ourselves what the hell we're talking about.
1: <laughs> You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www3 crorg so, Misha, back to your story. Tell us about how you did continue your your journey into modern monetary theory.
3: Yeah. It started with a lot of just online research and reading. And, you know, I think uh, a lot of us with an MMT understanding have a light bulb moment where you see, I guess, the economy for how it really functions as opposed to how we're told it functions, mm-hmm. uh, often in the media. And, and, I, was, and I was just thinking you know, wouldn't it be great if there was Australia-specific content out there that was succinct yet in-depth? Because I really wanted to share this with family and friends, like my my newfound understanding.
1: Oh, you are becoming an evangelist already. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was thinking about, okay, well, what kind of video would I want to watch? Mm-hmm. In terms of what's out there already, like the ABC did a really great sort of comedic introduction to MMT that sort of piques your interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the next kind of in-depth, pithy thing that you may want to watch is, like, an hour-long university lecture or a debate. <laughs> and a lot of people either don't have the time or interest to engage
2: with that. What was the ABC piece that you referred to?
3: Oh, it's was the Leukonomics thing um,
2: on the weekly show with Charlie Pickering. I, I saw that. That, that, was, that was a really good, as you say, comedic uh, and brief explanation of MMT. So good. I think Bill Mitchell was involved with that too. I think he fact-checked it,
1: yeah. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes too, the link to the Leukonomics piece. Definitely. It sounds like what you're saying, Misha, is you identified a gap in the way MMT is communicated to the unsuspecting public.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I came up with a, a storyboard which was based on an article by uh, Dr. Stephen Hale, which introduces three concepts MMT brings to us. Um, and my mind just jumped straight to sketch kind of videos, um, often called explainer videos, where we just see somebody drawing... Um, sort of in real time.
1: I always love that style of animation. That's where you watch the picture actually appearing on the page. You don't see the hand. It's like the picture's drawing itself.
3: Yeah, um, and I had great input from the artist Emma Winton. Mm -hmm. It was a matter of discussing with Emma the economics ideas and how best to communicate those visually. So there's a bit of back and forth. And, you know, similarly with the voiceover, it's one thing to have something on the written page, but when someone actually reads it, bringing their own personality to the script it comes out in its own way so kat had input as well in terms of how she would say something or being able to identify when something could be better expressed that was quite fun as well having that, that back and forth
2: with both emma and kat so you had something of a script to run by but you allowed the um the jazz uh, some improvisation by by the artists themselves
3: there's definitely joy in that like because you know you give someone a brief and you see what they come back with yeah
1: As you say, uh, you took the structure of the concepts from Stephen Hale's article, and so the video goes through these three main ideas that MMT brings to us, so I thought we might have a quick listen to the
0: introductory clip from the video. To help us understand how our economic system actually works, we'll explore the principles of modern monetary theory, or MMT for short. MMT is based on three key insights. One, monetarily sovereign governments face no purely financial spending constraints. Two, all economies and all governments face real limits relating to what can be produced and consumed. Three, the government's financial deficit is everyone else's financial surplus. The important thing to remember is that the three insights MMT is based on aren't something that has to be adopted or implemented. They are simply facts of how our current monetary system functions – We just need a government who is willing to use the full potential of our currency to benefit our whole society. I love Kat's voice. She's got that really down-to-earth
1: voice. Did you consider
2: it all, Misha, using a middle-aged white guy's voice, uh, authoritative and and something which which has has that, I don't know, that uh, just makes people pay attention? uh oh, no, it wasn't no. i'm just I'm just face palming right now <laughs> i could I could have done it for you now listen, this is the way the world did yeah yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah well well, speaking of the voice, we just heard a lot of economic jargon then, and before we delve into these three life changing paradigm busting revelations, <laughs> let's just start with an overview um. What is MMT? What is modern monetary theory? And I'll give you my soundbite, which I always say well, it's a school of macroeconomic thought. Macroeconomics looks at the economy of an entire nation. And so MMT starts with this big picture look at the economy. All right,
3: I'll give you my take on a definition. Um, I would say it's a framework for analysing the economy and it acknowledges some basic facts about how our monetary systems and institutions are organised. Um, and it allows a government to make much more meaningful macroeconomic policy decisions. Uh, that's to say, like, a lot of the commentary you hear today from journalists and politicians, whether they know it or not, is based on an old, outdated way of thinking about the economy that no longer applies today. Mm-hmm. So, MMT is just like a superior decision-making framework.
1: The animation talks about monetarily sovereign governments face no
0: purely financial spending constraints monetarily sovereign governments face no purely financial spending constraints
1: so now we're starting to talk about what this monetary sovereignty is and part of that is not being on a fixed exchange rate
3: Uh, well in addition to um, not directly converting to a commodity like gold, there's the notion of whether your exchange rate is fixed or floating. So I think it was in um, uh, 1983 that Australia floated its currency um, on the exchange markets. So uh, it was 1971 when the US went off the gold standard and therefore so did everybody else. But it wasn't until 83 that in the Australian context we floated our currency, which really gives the government a whole lot more options in terms of its spending capacity.
1: And it always seems to me like the most bizarre kind of situation to be in, this idea of being on a fixed exchange, because what happens is that if your domestic economy is doing really well, then the value of your currency will go up and you have to actually make the value of your currency go back down because you've promised to fix it to a certain level. So that's what we mean when it really constrains what you can do. Yeah, And then I guess there are these other aspects of monetary sovereignty, which is this idea that the government will actually tax in its own currency.
3: Yeah. Um, Once a currency is not directly convertible to something by gold, the question then arises, well, why use it at all? So, like, take the Australian dollar. It's not convertible to gold. Why does everybody want to hold Australian dollars? Mm. And The uninitiated perhaps might say, oh, well, because I can buy all this stuff with it. It's like, yeah, but why are we using Australian dollars? Why aren't we using US dollars or Bitcoin or chickens or whatever? And ultimately, it comes down to federal taxation. The only thing the tax office will accept for us to pay our taxes is Australian dollars. Like, they don't accept US dollars. They don't accept chickens. Which then means at some point, we all need to hold Australian dollars to pay our taxes. Mm. So taxes actually drive demand for the government's currency.
1: So that common sense understanding is certainly what I had. I thought, the reason I want dollars is because I can go out and spend them and get stuff. Well, why would the other person want the dollars who's selling me stuff? Well, that's because they think somebody else will want the dollars to get stuff. And so it's this infinite regression of uh, who's sillier than who, who's willing to exchange something for bits of paper. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, MMT completely overthrows that common sense view. And as you say, if we are legally obliged at some point, even if it's not you personally if you're not actually earning enough to pay taxes, which some years on unemployment benefits I haven't been, (laughs) somebody somewhere has got to pay the Australian government the money.
3: Mm, Yeah.
1: And one of the really interesting ways of reframing what taxation is in relation to this idea that the government can never run out of Australian dollars, like when you're talking to someone who is still in the mindset that their tax money is funding the government – One of the ways to get through that resistance whereby somebody will think, well, are you telling me I'm not an upstanding citizen because my taxes don't help contribute to society? And the way to reframe that is to say, well, actually, your contribution to society is the work that you put in. It's the hours of work that you are doing. It's not the taxes that you're paying. And when you think of it that way, then you can say, well, The person who just spent eight hours stocking shelves in a supermarket during a pandemic that is a contribution that's more close to the value of someone who spent eight hours doing press conferences that day. (laughs) So I just like that reframing that the the taxpayer is not the person that we aspire to be. It's actually the person working to contribute something to the world, including people who during a pandemic will work away very hard at making an animation. That's just such a wonderful contribution as well.
3: Oh, thanks. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the flip side of that might be uh, a billionaire mining magnate who suggests that their um medicare tax bill is such a valuable contribution to our society that idea gets called into question because it's like well no actually that's not valuable at all
1: <laughs> exactly
3: yeah the i guess the assumption behind that is the government is constrained in its spending much like a household is um you know there are no intrinsic constraints to government spending in a fiat currency system. I'm
1: glad you brought up the household analogy because I feel like that that's one of the places where MMT really digs into our psyches and extracts this idea that the federal government is like a household in its budget in that it has to earn the money somehow or borrow the money somehow like we do. So now when you hear the household analogy, Misha, how do you react?
3: My mind goes straight to sequence and this is something Warren Mosler talks about Imagine a country that has just popped into existence. Let's say, for example, we've just colonised Mars and Mars is going to launch its new currency called the Crater.
2: (laughs) Uh. Can I give you a better example? Yeah, go on. Let's say Western Australia just decides that it's going to um, call itself a a new nation because... (laughs) 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 Because... because... All right, and uh, what are we going to call their currency? Um, we're going to call it. We're to call it. It has to do something with Gina Reinhardt. It has to be like a um a, a, the ore. <laughs> it's not the dollar. Like they run. They run a currency called the ore. The, the ore. The ore. All right.
3: <laughs> All right. Um. So the first thing everyone's going to ask is like, where do we get ores from? How do we get them? And the government is the issuer of the ore. They have to spend them into existence. That's like the first thing they have to do. Um order for anyone to be able to pay taxes or whatnot. So I guess that's how I sort of respond um, to this idea that the government is anyway like a a household. It's just not applicable.
1: So Queen Gina, if she's sitting there going, okay, I want my oars. If she doesn't start spending them, they just aren't going to (laughs) happen.
3: Exactly. Yeah.
1: She can't be thinking like a household if she's going to secede from Australia. (laughs) There's a little tip for you, Gina. And then I think the last thing in this monetary sovereign idea is The country as a nation, you don't have any debt that you owe that's in somebody else's currency.
3: Yeah, so um, say Australia owed heaps of US dollars, for instance. Maybe Australia had to go out and buy lots of uh, oil and maybe we weren't exporting much. Um, So we weren't able to get uh, much of the US foreign currency to then buy the oil. We might have to borrow US dollars from the US. And then... Once you're in that position with heaps of uh, foreign debt, then your economy is constrained in working out how to get the US dollars to pay down the debt, because we don't issue US dollars, so we can't guarantee that we're going to meet those debt obligations when they fall due. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist
2: at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. On Radio
1: 3CR. So, once we're there, once we're a monetarily sovereign nation, we find joy, oh joy, we're into this paradise of no financial constraints. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's no limit, essentially, to how many of the Australian dollars the Australian government can produce. Exactly How? how is the government creating money and why would we say that it's essentially an unlimited resource, this money?
3: An analogy I really like is like a footy match. So when a team kicks a goal at a footy match, the the umpire issues six points to that team. You can think of the umpire as our currency issuing federal government. Like the umpire will never run out of points They don't need to collect a bunch of points first before they issue them to the teams. They just mark up the score on the board. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how our government, through the Reserve Bank of Australia, um, spends money. They simply instruct the bank to mark up uh, a commercial bank account by whatever it is, $100 million, to, to build a bridge. So, it's just money created out of thin air.
1: Yeah, I think that's what the economists call fiat money, isn't it? Because you're basically, by decree, you're creating this money. And as you say, the umpire is never going to stop the game midway through and say, oh no, we've got to stop playing everyone because we've just run out of points. (laughs) (laughs) So the Australian government can never run out of Australian dollars in the same way. Can I go off on a tangent here, Anne? Mm. So if you're playing a
2: game of footy and one team is absolutely slaughtering the other team, they're... 20 goals to 1.
1: Mm.
2: Is that kind of like inflation? Oh, no. Where if a team is 19 goals ahead and it kicks another goal, that goal is kind of pointless. The goal to a team that has kicked 20 goals or kicking another goal doesn't mean very much. And everything's out of whack because you have uh, an unequal distribution of points in a game to that extent that uh-huh. that the points start losing their meaning. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have taken the football analogy where no MMT has gone before, Kevin. <laughs> I, I
3: would say that's a really long bow to draw. Isn't that kind of like monetarism? <laughs> I'm just tossing it out there to see if we can use analogy. <laughs> that sounds like the quantity theory of money. The more points out there, the, the less they're worth. We're
1: not sure where that analogy has taken us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
2: Sorry, sorry. <laughs> This could could ruin my football watching. uh
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, so so the way the Australian government spends (laughs) is that, uh, this is the way I figure it, is that the parliament get together and they make a decision. That's why you always want a majority because then you get to decide, you know, what you're going to spend on. And then once you've made that decision, the parliament's passing a bill And then within that bill, they've got a spending allocation. With the bill, they pass on instructions to the Treasury. And then the Treasury is going to do all the calculations of how much money they need to spend. And then they'll pass those instructions on to the central bank, which is the Reserve Bank of Australia. And then they will literally type numbers into their keyboards and put the money into our bank accounts. So for example, if you're somebody who is getting job seeker, the central bank is typing that amount of money into your bank account, or say you're supplying them, say, railway lines to build a railway line to a coal mine, <laughs> then the central bank is typing numbers into the computers of the people who supply the rail, or you're a school who's teaching people to become nurses then the government is typing that money into the account of the school. So it's really important to look at where they've decided to spend and it's not so important to look at whether or not we're going to run out of the dollars to spend.
3: I guess another thing that might be worth mentioning is um, the intrinsic part. Like the, the federal government doesn't have any intrinsic financial constraints mm. and, and that's important because currently there are institutional constraints or constraints that government has placed on itself, like they've just passed legislation saying this is how we are constraining ourselves. Mm. Currently, the federal government needs to have a positive balance in its account at the Reserve Bank of Australia in order to spend. This is full funding, yeah? Full funding, yes. Mm -hmm. But that's just a policy decision. Like, Mm. you know, we could vote for a, a party that says, you know what, we're going to put a spending constraint in place which says the Prime Minister needs to jump six feet in the air before the government can spend a dollar. <laughs> it's, it's just a choice.
1: So that's a, that's a choice that the government has made to constrain itself. Um, and another part of this thing about the government can never run out of Australian dollars... I just was thinking, too, about why is it that you always hear in the MMT world, let's not talk about this as printing money. Mm. Why do they not like that phrase, printing money? And one thing I came up with was that if you just say printing money, you're not distinguishing between money as this legal construct and money as a physical thing. And so if you say printing money, people are going to think notes and coins as what's going to be the image in your head. And as the MMT economists say, well, they're just the tokens that represent something else. So what's the something else that they're representing? And that's this idea of you having a tax liability that you were talking about earlier. And I was thinking, well, we all know this. We're all familiar with this in our daily lives. Because if we go to the picture theatre and we buy a ticket, Mm. We're not standing there thinking, wow, I just brought a really great piece of paper. (laughs) (laughs) You're actually sitting there thinking, I've just brought an experience to go watch a movie. So the ticket's representing something in the way that the cash represents something. So I'm thinking, oh, that's one reason why they don't like the term printing money to describe what's going on when the government spends. I remember a light
3: bulb moment for me. Mm Mm-hmm was when I heard Warren Mosler talking about the banking system. And he's really precise in his language. He, he himself sort of says, oh, I try not to you know, use the word money too much because it's a very imprecise way of talking about the monetary system. He'll talk about reserve accounts in the US. So, I think in Australia, they're called exchange settlement accounts, which uh, bank accounts at the Reserve Bank of Australia. He'll talk about physical notes and coins, um, currency. He'll talk about... Bank deposits, commercial bank deposits, or um, bank loans, and when you go down the rabbit hole and really understand how the monetary system functions and all its all of its moving parts, then you're very precise about your language. Mm-hmm. You, you're able to answer questions like, "Yeah, but I can just swipe my credit card and pay my taxes." <laughs> uh, commercial banks create ninety-seven percent of the money in the economy, <laughs> you know, and all the, this obfuscated complexity of the the monetary system falls into sharp relief.
1: That word money.
3: It's really imprecise, yeah.
2: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience
1: of unemployment and underemployment here
2: on 3CR Community Radio.
1: We have described how the Australian government can never run out of Australian dollars. And you don't have to take just our word for it. Let's have a listen to Alan Greenspan. There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. Who made this comment, which is uh, renowned within the MMT world. Alan Greenspan, he was the chair of the Federal Reserve in the United States. So that's like the central bank in the US. He was there for nearly 20 years. And in 2005, uh, he was talking to the House of Representatives. And he actually said in plain English that the American government can produce as many dollars as it needs to. There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. One of the things that I often hear the modern monetary theory economists say is that a country that issues its own currency can always afford to buy whatever is for sale in the currency. And I think what a lot of people hear is the government can just go ahead and buy anything and everything and spend as much money as it wants. (laughs) (laughs) So even though the government can never run out of dollars, there is this thing called limits. So the second part of your video, Misha, it does start to talk about, well, what's the catch here? There's got to be a
0: catch. The government can't just spend an infinite amount of money. All economies and all governments face real limits relating to what can be produced and consumed.
1: So in the video, it says that all economies and all governments face real limits relating to what can be produced and consumed. One of the things I've discovered with this economic stuff is that word real.
3: Mm. I think, you know, in our day-to-day lives, we're just so used to exchanging money for goods and services. Certainly in my mind, they're almost interchangeable. Mm. But when you're thinking in macroeconomic terms and how much currency can the government Inject into the economy as you've pointed out. There's no intrinsic financial constraint, but there is a, a real resource constraint. And what that means is, what what's actually available in the economy for use? Like, what's the unemployment rate? Are there heaps of people who would like a job? Are factories operating at perhaps 50% uh, capacity? Could they possibly produce more output? Are there real resources that aren't currently being used, like uh, steel and timber and maybe... Uh, or
2: sunlight, wind and, and solar, that unused resources
3: that could also be used? Mm. So, capacity utilization, unemployment rate and raw materials are the real resources that are available for purchase. So, if they're all fully utilized in the non-government sector, so unemployment's really low and there's really n- nothing available for sale, then... Any further spending by the government could be inflationary and start to drive up the prices of these things. So that is the real resource constraint. Government comes up against this inflation constraint.
1: So the prices would go up because the government would essentially be competing with the private sector. So let's say that there's a COVID pandemic and now the government wants to employ more nurses. If there's literally no more nurses, then The only way the government's going to get those nurses, say, out of a private hospital is to pay them more to come and work in a public hospital. And so that would drive up the price of wages there.
3: This is one of the insights Warren Miles has really been pushing. This idea that Mm -hmm. government is a monopoly currency issuer in our economy Mm. um, is price setter. So if government pays a higher price for exactly the same thing, so say um, it can buy an hour of labour for... $50 $50 an hour. And then because uh, it's competing at market prices, and pay $60 an hour for labor. It's just defined the value of its currency down by that
1: amount. So, why it acts as a constraint on spending, if we don't want too much inflation, the government's got to stop spending. Is that why it acts as a constraint? Yes. And you know, the other way I think about it too is like, um, even though you can say that the government can always afford to buy whatever's for sale in Australian dollars, well, if they're wanting mangoes or whatever, if you've only got one box of mangoes and they want six boxes of mangoes, it doesn't matter how much money they've got. They're not going to suddenly create another five boxes of mangoes.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's how I sort of figure the way the resources act as a constraint. There's only so much you can buy anyway. Mm, yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Let's get on to the third idea in the video. So the first two ideas, I see them as describing what the relationship is between a currency issuer and its currency. And then there's this third idea in the video, which in economic speak, it says, The government's financial deficit is everybody else's financial surplus. The government's
0: financial deficit is everyone else's financial surplus.
1: And now we're moving into the relationship between the currency user and the currency issuer. The currency issuer, that's the federal government... And then the currency user is everybody else who uses the dollars that the government issues. So that includes state governments, local governments, businesses, households, even foreign players. So everybody else is a currency user. And so the the relationship between the issuer and the user gets expressed in this idea of deficits and surpluses. So what exactly is the government's deficit and what is the surplus? What are these things?
3: There's a few frames, I guess, you can use for looking at these ideas. The precise technical one, I guess you would say, a deficit is when the government is spending more into the non-government sector than it's receiving in tax receipts. So spending is higher than taxes. And then a surplus is when uh, the government's tax receipts, revenues are higher than it's spending.
1: So if the government is spending and it's spending more than it's sucking back in through taxes and it's running a deficit.
3: Mm. I don't know if you know the economist John T. Harvey. Yes. Um, He's he's a great economist and a great communicator of ideas, and he's just got some really humorous metaphors that he uses. And I'm going to paraphrase one of his, which is all about uh, hammers and saws. Like, if you've got a plank of wood that you want to cut in half, you're going to want to use a saw. But then if you want to, like, bang in a nail... I'm sure we'll all be really excited about hammers and we're going to want to use a hammer. <laughs> and deficits and surpluses, they're two different tools. They do two different jobs. And so depending on what the job is and what's indicated by your economic state, you are going to choose a different tool.
1: That really highlights this idea that the word deficit, we're so used to thinking that means a negative mm. or a deficiency that we think of it as just a bad thing. Mm. And then a surplus, we think of that as like an extra. <laughs> it's like a bonus. So That must be a good thing. And so in our heads with this language, we think, oh, deficits must be bad, surpluses must be good. But this uh, hammer and saw do, they go, well, one's not good and one's not bad. That's a really good way of getting us out of this mindset.
2: If you're talking about surpluses and deficits, if you're saying that the government runs a deficit, that means that the private sector is running a surplus, so that the negative of the government is balanced by the positive for the private sector.
1: And the way economists describe that is the thing called the sectoral balances graph. One of those lovely pictures that the economists produce that we can't show you on radio, but you can look it up, and that demonstrates in a really strong visual way how... We are in this inverse mirror relationship to the government. And
2: in accounting terms, there's always double entries. And so we're only told one side of the entry story. We're not told the Mm, other side. mm. We're told about government deficits and they forget to mention that, oh, that's a private sector surplus.
1: When the government spends, the money's got to go somewhere and land somewhere. And the only place it's going to be able to land is in the non-government sector so it's going to land either in our bank accounts or the bank accounts of some corporation or the bank accounts of some overseas entity. That's the big picture. That's the full picture, whereas the neoliberals, they just focus on the fact that the government spent. Boom. End of story. (laughs) It's as if if it just spent.
3: (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. I mean, imagine if, like, the federal budget was couched from the perspective of the non-government sector. So... Each year, Josh Frydenberg or whoever comes out and says, all right, so this year we're going to be running a non-government deficit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that would be the government surplus, yep.
3: Yeah. We're going to be removing dollars from
2: the economy. I'm sure you can all get behind that. (laughs) Which is precisely what they say. (laughs) Every time they say a government surplus, what they're really saying is we're going to run a private sector deficit. But they don't frame it that way. But that's exactly what happens. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: One of the ways of reframing a surplus is to not think of it as a pile of money that's gradually piling up. (laughs) So, So this idea that surpluses are not providing the government with this pile of money they can spend out of Hmm. Yeah When the government spends It goes into our pockets Or when it taxes The money comes back Out of our pockets That's the relationship Between the currency issuer And the currency user Yeah The government's issuing The currency And we're all using it And it's spending Into the economy In order to effectively Have an economy There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3CR.org.au You know, so the way I've heard uh Surpluses and deficits described by Stephanie Kelton, who is one of the prominent MMT economists out there, and she wrote the book The Deficit Myth. Their red ink is our black ink. So that refers to the way accountants will write negative numbers in red ink and positive numbers in black ink. So their deficit is our surplus. And she describes the surplus and the deficit as just numbers. She says, Oh, they're just numbers effectively you're just looking at how much was spent minus how much was taxed or how much was taxed minus how much was spent um and so as just numbers they actually don't tell you anything about how the economy is doing um so they don't have any information in them (laughs) and so i was thinking um well in that case how could you tell if your deficit is too high or your surplus is too high Mm. and um and I think the point is that you just don't look at those numbers. They're not going to tell you. What you've got to do is look at what's happening in the what they call the real economy. Mm. So once again, we come back to our resources.
3: You know, and the most valuable resource of all is uh, people.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and so I guess you'd be looking at the unemployment rate to see whether, you know, the economy is at full employment or I think at the peak of the pandemic, it was somewhere around 15, 16%, something like that.
1: Yeah, a couple of million people.
3: Yeah that's an indication that perhaps your deficit is too low if there's mass unemployment.
1: Yes, so that's what they talk about when policymakers think that they need to, quote, target the deficit, meaning that they've got some dollar amount number in their heads about what they can spend, whereas MMT economists say that you need to target the effect of the deficit, not target the deficit. And the effect of the deficit is going to be all those things like full employment or transitioning out of a fossil fuel economy
3: and all those resources all that work people could be doing to improve our society to to help each other out is just just going to waste
1: criminally wasted mm. that's a really good example isn't it because we could say you know oh the government's just spend 100 billion dollars into the economy and everyone falls over and then us mmt's are sitting there going not enough <laughs> <laughs> because we're still seeing unemployed people
3: yeah absolutely
1: yeah And and, you know on this idea of um, deficits um, not being necessarily bad or not necessarily good even, Mm -hmm. but interestingly they're more common. So historically, uh, Australia and other countries, over the years, they're more likely to have run a deficit than a surplus. Mm -hmm. So apparently um, Menzies, who was in the Conservative government, he ran budget deficits for every one of the last nine years of his government. And he was even boasting about the size of his deficit, <laughs> <laughs> being a guy. <laughs>
3: it's amazing how, you know, our ideas about, about these things have just changed so drastically.
1: Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so everyone was understanding that the deficit was maybe benefiting them.
3: You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR. And I'm Martin Watts, Professor of Economics at Newcastle
2: University.
1: So, deficits. If you add them all together over time, this is what we call the federal government debt. And I was just wondering if either of you'd like to have a go at reframing that horrible word debt. Well, you
2: know... You know that I would, and and that, that, that was a Dorothy Dixer if I've ever heard one in my life. <laughs> government debt, we, we've we had this discussion. It's not called government debt anymore. We call it government contribution to the economy, and we thank them very much. Uh-huh. And they're never, never getting it back. They can pretend that they're going to get it back, but they're never going to get it back. <laughs> and, and debt is the wrong word because debt implies that it's going to be paid back. Well, if you stop calling it a debt, you're actually communicating the fact that it's not going to be paid back, that, it, that it's not owed. <laughs> So all we say about um, accumulated government deficits and especially after their half-hearted attempt at reviving the economy through COVID with, with job seeker and JobKeeper and the rest of it. Thank you very much for that. Should have been more. Um, uh, <laughs> we're keeping it. Thank you for your contribution to the economy. Uh, you'll never see it again. Um, and thank
3: you. Can
1: we, let, can we let Misha have a word in there? <laughs> sure.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so government debt is the issuance of government bonds. You can think of a government bond as like a term deposit at a bank that you might bank with. So, uh, say you got $1,000 in your checking account and you agree to put it in a term deposit for one year. You don't have access to that money for that year, but it accrues some sort of interest for a year. And a government bond is, is similar. You lock it away for an agreed time and it earns a particular interest rate. Mm-hmm. Going back to sort of Gina Reinhardt and her war empire over in the West, <laughs> yeah. the population would need to get hold of the currency first somehow in order to be able to even purchase government debt. So, again, we go back to sequence where the government needs to spend currency into the economy first. So, the debt isn't funding anything. It's, it's like an opportunity for people to squirrel their money away and, and earn some kind of interest rate. Uh, that, that's really all it is.
1: Yeah. So, basically, once the government's done its spending, there will be this accumulating savings of the non-government sector. As Kevin says, it's the government's contribution. I think of it as the collective pile of wealth that we all have as a nation. Mm. So there's scary word debt can actually mean quite a different thing.
2: If we ran an economy for a thousand years that debt is just going to grow and grow and grow and grow so stop calling it a debt and just call it a contribution it's what the government needs to do it needs to spend into the economy as the economy expands mm. it needs to provide services like JobKeeper and job seeker. it needs to build hospitals it needs to uh, fund education it needs to fund armies it- we never worry about the debt that military spending uh, causes uh, for some strange reason. And, and uh, when we have wars, this, this is blown out to an extreme. Mm. You don't call it a debt. You call it an investment in, in your country. Otherwise, you're going to be run, run over by foreign forces. So stop calling it a debt. Call it a contribution to the society. And, uh, and this conversation would make a lot more sense.
1: It's an old tactic, right, to use fear-mongering to win elections where you put up this false boogeyman, this false danger, and then you say, well, I'm the responsible politician or we're the party that will save you from this terrible, dangerous situation. And that's how they use debts and deficits to win elections. Yeah.
3: You raise an interesting point about debt during uh, wartime. I was uh, doing some reading the other night on the Reserve Bank of Australia's uh, museum website.
1: As you do, late at night.
3: (laughs) As you do, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But um, when the the economy is on a war footing, when government is trying to produce as much stuff as possible to fight a war, people sort of talk about running the economy really hot. There's a risk of inflation, so it's possible that, um, you know, government and its citizens could start bidding up the price of what's available. So one function of the issuance of bonds was to try and remove some currency, lock it up in these bonds, these term deposits, to prevent people from purchasing stuff and, and driving up the price of goods. Yeah, to suck currency out of the economy for that reason,
2: to stop pushing the uh, the prices up.
1: I think of it as like freezing money. just puts it on ice for a while until um, the bonds mature.
2: I'll just read this little bit that I, that I found. This
3: is during World War II. The federal government recognised the need to absorb and divert the population's spending power in order to reduce the risk of inflation. In order to do so, it introduced a series of war loans and war savings programs. These included liberty loans, austerity loans, victory loans, war savings stamps, amongst others. These were instruments designed to absorb and immobilise citizens' money in order to reduce their spending power.
2: And it's done under the guise that they're supporting the war effort, as if they're lending money to the government to buy uh, tanks and war machinery. But its real purpose is to extract excess currency from the economy to counter-inflation.
1: That was really playing on the patriotic fervour of the time. So people would buy the bonds to be patriotic. But the issuing of bonds under the guise of helping the government to pay for the war, it actually didn't work that well. Because as uh, the economists say, people make their spending decisions before they make their saving decisions. So people would only buy bonds with what they felt like they had left over after they'd done the spending that the government didn't want them to do. Mm -hmm. So then in the UK, the government had to pretend to be this other entity and buy up all the bonds so they didn't destroy the sense of the the populace getting behind the war effort. (laughs) So so sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work.
3: What I find quite interesting about that program was – the name of one of those uh, bond issuances, like the austerity loan. Austerity one, yeah.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, which kind of I- explicitly says, look, everyone, we need to tighten our belts, give up some of your purchasing power. Yes. So that there's enough real resources to fund the war effort. Mm. And maybe that goes to a greater sense of that patriotic collective will, perhaps.
1: And it also comes with the promise that at some point you can untighten your belt.
2: And of course, if all that fails, they, um, they bring in rationing.
1: That's right. They did the rationing and the pricing. Um,
2: Price fixing, yeah. They turn into complete socialists, is what you're saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I was thinking now that one of the ways I look at money is as a public utility So it's something the government produces, and in an ideal world, it would be spending it for the public good. As someone, Misha, who works in the creative industries, I'm sure you've heard many more times than you'd care to that we'd love to do this, but we just can't afford it. (laughs)
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I was wondering now how your worldview has changed and how you respond to this sense that the creative world is just a nice to have, but sorry, we can't afford it.
3: Yeah, I think that's why I'm so excited by modern monetary theory. Mm. As you pointed out, and the prevailing paradigm is how are we going to pay for it? And you hear it everywhere, you know, even places like the Climate Council of Australia. You've got a group of fantastic scientists on there who see a clear way forward for how we can decarbonise it in our economy. Mm-hmm. And then there, there might be an economist on the panel and the question that gets thrown to them, so how are we going to pay for all this? Yeah you get, well, taxes, well, borrowing, well, you know, GDP versus debt ratios, like all this rubbish, frankly. (laughs) So what I see in MMT is the ability of our current market capitalist system to to change on a dime. If we have people in power who understand the monetary system and have a progressive set of policies and, and are really putting people first, then the system is set up to allow that change to happen very, very quickly.
1: So in other words, if we can imagine it and if we can build it, then we can always afford it.
3: Yeah. So whether it's funding for artists, whether it's a transition to a a more sustainable society or an improved healthcare system and education system, Mm -hmm. MMT allows us uh, to see a really clear path forward for how it's possible.
1: It's like we have in front of us the need to act fairly quickly. (laughs) You know, we've got maybe a decade to turn around our economy. Mm. And so what modern monetary tells you is that, in fact, you can rejig the economy in very short order. Mm. That's the source of hope and inspiration that I get from MMT.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, I just want to remind people before we wrap up here that uh, you can view the two-part animation and... I will put a link to them in the show notes. Um, it's absolutely delightful to watch. And as we were saying at the beginning, sometimes you need a couple of goes at these ideas to get your head around them. So there's a chance for another go.
2: Yeah, thank you, Misha. Thank you very much for condensing down these long and complicated conversations into two six-minute videos, uh, which I'm sure will go viral. <laughs> and I'd just like to acknowledge everybody who's had
3: so much input into this video. Kat and Emma, as well as all the professional economists and activists.
1: Thanks very much for coming on to the show, Misha. It's been great to talk with you.
3: Well, thank you, Anne and Kev, for having me on the show. Thanks, Misha. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Bye. I feel like that was a proper introduction to MMT, just those ideas that you can start exploring.
2: Oh, look, it's very important to have this message delivered in a way that is easy to understand. Mm-hmm and Misha's such a lovely fella and yeah, that flows through the production of this this little video <laughs> clip so um, everybody should go and have a look at it
1: Yeah, it's very engaging Well, we've nearly run out of time, Kevin It's not usually me saying to you that we've got to stop talking but I think we do
2: Well, if you're saying it, Anne then, then it must be so uh, <laughs> uh, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks, Anne See you
1: then, Kevin Bye You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back
2: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR.
1: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
2: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
1: And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no,
2: no, the pleasure was all mine.
1: Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
2: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
1: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you
2: took all the pleasure, that means there's no pleasure for me at all. And I oh. quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure?
1: I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well,
2: we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure. Great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure.
1: Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that...